0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Where can parents turn when they receive a so-called lethal prenatal diagnosis? Doctors will often recommend abortion, but how do parents get accurate information about their child's medical condition? As well as ethically appropriate recommendations for how to move forward. Today's guest, Tracy Windsor, speaks to these and other related questions. Tracy is the co founder and program director of Be Not Afraid, a private, nonprofit Catholic organization that provides comprehensive case management for parents who, following a life limiting prenatal diagnosis, are carrying their child to term. She's also the lead author of Newborn Care and Lethal Prenatal Diagnoses, published in the 2020 edition of the NCBC's Catholic Healthcare Ethics, A Manual for Practitioners. Tracy Windsor, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Joe, for having me. It's so great to be here.
0: It's our pleasure and our honor to have you. So as our listeners know, I ask this of every new guest on our podcast. Tracy, can you tell our listeners a bit about your background specifically your education and work experience leading up to your work with Be Not Afraid?
1: Certainly. Uh, It's kind of an interesting story. It's rather circuitous with twists and turns and some irony. Um, BNA is actually kind of my third career, in a sense. Uh, I completed my undergraduate studies about 30 years ago with a double major in English and psychology and a minor in gerontology. And in considering graduate school, I really didn't think I wanted to work directly with people in crisis. Uh, My psychology studies had convinced me of that at that point in my life, Um, but rather that I would like to manage programs that provided services to individuals in crisis. So kind of once removed from serving people directly. So I got a master's degree in public administration. And after that started a career working primarily in aging, again, kind of interesting in terms of where I am now. But mm-hmm. transition to housing and U.S. HUD the year before, my husband and I had our first baby. Um, unexpectedly, our first baby was a NICU baby. And um, the day that I was discharged from the hospital and he remained a NICU, I decided that if I ever got to take him home, I couldn't go back to work. And I find myself or I found myself uh, kind of a type A woman at home who was enjoying motherhood way more than I had ever anticipated I might. and. Um, So over the next couple of years, there was another baby and another baby, and and you kind of get the idea. So about 12 years later, we had six surviving sons and and two babies in heaven, having had two pregnancy losses. Really, in terms of my professional development, there were two things that happened in those 12 years, in addition to all those sweet boys. Um, And one was that uh, I started working more and more in the area of maternal child health. I became a childbirth educator and completed perinatal bereavement training, things like that. Um, Certainly different than my professional career in aging. And um, the other thing that happened that was that because of my work background, and as a result of several career moves we made for my husband's jobs, I was asked two or three times to take the lead in the development of Elizabeth ministry efforts uh, at different parishes. So for those that don't know, Elizabeth ministry is a Parish-based young family ministry. And because of my own experiences, I always would include a NICU support component and perinatal bereavement component to the ministries that I work to develop. Um, and so over time, working within the church became very familiar to me. And I got over any anxiety that I might have previously about building ministry, um, recruiting and training volunteers and making certain that meaningful ministry was actually being provided, uh, after we had set something up. So that's pretty much my background that led me to the development of BNA.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. And if we talk to many people and it sounds as if you're in the same boat. People never expected to be doing what they are doing, you know, based on what they started out doing. So if you, you think about your background back when you were in college and what you thought you were going to end up doing. Did you ever think you would, you would be the program director at Be Not Afraid.
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And I did not expect that I would be the mother of six sons. (laughs) Um, So I I always say God had a sense of humor because I grew up in a family of women. Um, And I certainly can even say as the co-founder of Be Not Afraid, that what I thought I was doing in that co-founding is very different than ultimately Uh, what we've ended up creating.
0: Yep. I'm, I'm in the same boat. So anyway, so tell us about your current position at Be Not Afraid.
1: So I'm the Parrot program coordinator. Um, and I pretty much have had this position for like 12 years, occasionally a slightly different job title. And it just means that I take the lead in terms of the provision of the direct support that we provide the families, um, as well as, um, you know, follow up, making certain that, um, the model of care that we're using Um, is appropriate for uh, what we want to be providing to families. And we've had some changes in that recently. Initially, we developed Be Not Afraid as a peer ministry because uh, my co-founder and I, as I said, were working in the parish and we knew what peer ministry looked like. Um, And we were not what we thought was the answer to parents with a prenatal diagnosis. Initially, we thought that our role or that God was asking us to maybe find somebody else in our local community to do this work. And we spent about two years trying to find somebody else, pro-life <laughs> or a hospital or, you know, anybody but us. And, um, at some point, we actually were instrumental in getting in our local community a perinatal hospice roundtable. And we walked out of that thinking, you know, a lot of people are doing a little bit of something but nobody wants to do anything comprehensive, and the really the problem was there wasn't money in it. So I think we pondered it a little bit more, and um, my co-founder Sandy doesn't remember if I said it. I think she said it, but one of the two of us said, "You know, what if God's asking us to to do the to do this service?" Um, and even as we set it up, um, you know, we had a manual and we were trying to get referrals. We just really did not expect it to be successful. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, <clears> thought it's you know, silly God doesn't understand that this will never work. There's no one will refer to a couple of wacky women. <laughs> and much to our surprise, people did in fact refer. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction over time, especially in the last three to four years, we realized that, um, we needed to be a little bit more uh, proactive in our planning and support of our parents in their journey, caring to term. So we've developed into a case management service with still having a peer ministry component. Great. Right.
0: So you, you've talked about a, a number of things. I kind of like to bring them all together. And, it, and if you could tell us briefly, what does Be Not Afraid do? What does the organization actually do?
1: So, um, well, we say we provide comprehensive care. So in most instances, we're connecting with parents at the diagnosis. For the vast majority of our families, that follows an anatomy scan anywhere from 17 to 20 weeks. Although often people think of an ultrasound as rather innocuous, most of our prenatal diagnoses stories start with an ultrasound. Um, there's another test, a new maternal uh, blood test that's offered in the first trimester. We have some number of parents that get a positive screen or a positive screening result from that test. So we may get them as early as 12 weeks in some cases. Um, and I think if we think of it as two things, you know, first and foremost, what we've done from the beginning in our founding was to provide what we like to call a community of care in that peer ministry component. So understanding regarding the crisis of a prenatal diagnosis and the parent experience of that compassion, pastoral support around that crisis. Um, Oftentimes a new language that reframes the experience. You know, parents feel like a prenatal diagnosis has been visited upon them. We try to help them understand that they can still parent this baby. Um, And almost always the first confirmation that they are shocked and bereaved, having lost the pregnancy, and often the baby that they thought they were going to have, and very likely traumatized. So there's that community of care component. Then relative to our case management support, you know, with peer ministry, we say, you know, we are with you on this journey as you carried a term. With case management support, we offer a more personalized plan for the journey forward or the path forward uh, that takes into consideration baby's diagnosis and how supportive their medical providers, mom and dad's medical providers may be, and making certain that parents understand their decision points along the path and that they have access to the information and resources um, that might be helpful to them in decisioning as well as an understanding of the options of what other people have done. Um, just making certain they have everything they need to navigate the path ahead of them and make the best possible decisions for themselves and, and for their baby.
0: For child. Yeah, we're going to unpack a lot of the things that you said as we move through this interview. But before going in there, I'm, I'm wondering the the name be not afraid i was uh i'm wondering was the name taken from jesus's message uh, throughout the gospels I, I was i'm also thinking john paul ii in some of his more well-known public uh public uh, speeches particularly in his homeland of poland that the message be not afraid was very prevalent uh there and I, I'm, I'm just wondering if if uh, where be not afraid came from the name
1: well, the name itself, uh, attached to support for families with a prenatal diagnosis, predates our direct service. Oh, okay. that there was a, a Catholic website founded, it's probably been 20 years ago now, um, by a Catholic mother in Chicago called Be Not Afraid. And when Sandy and I were trying to figure out whether God was asking us to do this, and as we were doing our research, we met Monica who's the mother who set up the website. Um, And, you know, she gave us a lot of information. It was wonderful. Initially, as we looked at what we thought we could name ourselves, we uh, considered just sticking with Elizabeth ministry. But in our diocese, everyone already had like this perception of what Elizabeth ministry did. And it was very much attached to the loss of a baby. And we Mm -hmm. wanted to not be focused on the loss of a baby at prenatal diagnosis, but rather this this crisis of the prenatal diagnosis and carrying to term. So that didn't work. And then um, briefly, we thought, oh, uh, you know, maybe there was a, a medical service model called perinatal hospice, and we thought, well, okay, maybe maybe we're a perinatal hospice. Um, but our pastor received a phone call from a local hospice organization that pushed back on that. So again. In that way, we were kind of standing there, scratching our heads, and I think it was Sandy's idea, and she thinks it was my idea. But one of us said, "I wonder if Monica would let us use that great name." Be not afraid. That's such a great right. name, right? It is a great name. Um, and uh, by the grace of God, she did. Uh, so, kind of early on, the website was wedded to the direct service. We say now, as you were starting to ask the question, that um, it's you know, we I think we thought we were telling parents, obviously be not afraid. And certainly we proclaim that to parents in our support of them. But we always joke that like we are the most afraid people that ever told other people to be not afraid. Because, you know, partially when you think you're setting something up and it it gets inherently more complicated and you don't really even think you're not even sure you were up to the task of the peer ministry. It can be a little intimidating. Um and you know, we're advocating with doctors and other people. Sometimes you feel like um uh, the one oddball that doesn't belong. So we, we probably are saying, be not afraid as much to ourselves as we are <laughs> to the parents we serve. Um, but it's been a very good name for us. Thank God.
0: That is great. And I do, when we're, when we're speaking, um, either at our NCBC seminars or other places around the country, whenever the, the issue of, you know, prenatal diagnoses comes up. I always mention be not afraid and people write it down and they love it. You know, they love the name, but it is, it's such a perfect name for an organization that does the work you do. So Tracy, tell us what prenatal diagnoses do you encounter most often?
1: Well, we've welcomed over the 12 years, we're up to, we're over 200. I think we might be approaching like 210. Um, And probably the majority of those babies have either a diagnosis of trisomy 13 or trisomy 18, uh, which is a genetic condition that's often characterized with secondary ultrasound findings that can be uh, quite significant heart and brain anomalies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then, probably the next uh, set of babies would be babies with primary brain anomalies. So they don't have a genetic condition, but they have some significant structural abnormality in their brain. Um, and then there's probably just a smattering of a bunch of other things. Uh, we've had some very rare, unnamed, even genetic conditions. Um, we have a lot this year, we've had a lot of babies with heart defects. Um, people don't realize often that even if there is a newborn surgery, that's reasonably successful. Abortion is often offered to those parents. Mm -hmm. Um, other things, kidney issues, um, you know, some more mild genetic conditions like Turner syndrome. You know, I think our best work is in supporting parents with life-limiting prenatal diagnoses because we're so focused on providing a parent-centered care that helps them make the decisions for baby. Um, but a lot of times, I mean, this year, we have one family expecting a baby with Down syndrome. And, um, you know, talking to that mother, you can't deny the unexpected nature of that diagnosis. and The idea that somebody offered abortion as her best option was very burdensome. So we support parents that have um, less complicated uh, diagnoses in which baby's life is not in question, but in which the parents maybe need some extra TLC. Right.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's walk through kind of what happens. All right. So first question, what typically happens when a pregnancy is complicated by a prenatal diagnosis. In other words, the parents receive this diagnosis. What does the family experience initially? Um,
1: You know, in some ways, it actually goes back in like one step before the prenatal diagnosis, because we find often parents uh, don't have informed consent or didn't have a firm understanding of the significance of the testing that they and they agreed to, which only increases their shock right. at the time of the diagnosis. So, for instance, with this maternal blood test, uh, oftentimes it's presented to parents as, a, as the earliest way to figure out baby's gender. Um, and, and parents may not even realize that it's looking at other genetic or looking for other genetic diagnoses. Um, so they they come to us sometimes like not even realizing that they were in the process of finding out if baby had a diagnosis or not. The same can be said really for ultrasound, which most people think of as pretty benign. Right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, when you're, you know, going in to find out boy or girl um, and everybody's usually excited and often the siblings are brought along, um, you know, the tech and the doctor are looking for other structural abnormalities. Um, and there are mar- Uh, for life-limiting genetic syndromes like trisomy 13 and 18 that um, will suddenly come up, such as um, maybe a certain shape to the head or uh, kidneys that look a a certain way, um, clenched fists, rocker-bottom feet, things like that. Often the parents come into the diagnosis kind of blindsided by the idea that anything other than some kind of happy revelation was going to be the news they got that day. Often they will describe for you, uh, kind of, uh, the jolt of how the information is delivered in an ultrasound. Parents will frequently say they could tell something was wrong. The tech got very serious, turned the screen away from the parents, said they had to go get the doctor. Um, very often. And, and it's probably safe to probably 95% of the time abortion is offered almost immediately. Right. Um, And it's often offered as the only option or the best option in that first conversation. So imagine a parent that wasn't really even expecting bad news. And now suddenly someone who's already committed to a pregnancy uh, is hearing that their best choice is to end this pregnancy. Um, Oftentimes, quite shockingly, the, the parent might be. Uh, offered the option of terminating the pregnancy in the hospital setting within days, Uh, which we always say, you know, with a bereaved population, you generally encourage people not to make important decisions in the immediacy of the loss. Exactly. It's so easy to make a bad decision for yourself. Uh, But parents with a sibling there, we actually are serving a parent this year, abortion was brought up and offered with, a, I think, like a 12-year-old daughter in the room (sighs) who was there to see her baby sibling on ultrasound. Um, so very quickly parents understand that the perspective of baby has changed radically and that, um, and that, you know, baby is no longer the consideration rather what we do about this pregnancy becomes the consideration. Yeah. So they come to us, you know, uh, generally somewhat traumatized often uh, one of the first things we do on a first phone call is just let them download that whole story, um, with all the painful pieces of it, um, and you know different people attached to different things. But often they're they're you know very sad stories, and you would wish that there was a way to better educate providers about how they might deliver the information versus right. what normally happens.
0: Yeah. So I believe you used this term lethal language uh, a little earlier. Yes. Can you tell us what is lethal language with regard to a prenatal diagnosis and, and again, the impact of that language on parents?
1: Yes. Um, you know, 12 years ago when, when we started this work, we used lethal language um, and it was more commonly used. I don't think we were as clear then as to why it was used. Uh, it's often attached very quickly. So when abortion is offered, it's often attached at that point. Um, increasingly, again, over maybe say the last five years or so, there's been some concern about the use of lethal language with the idea being that, um, it's used not necessarily because a doctor can tell with any accuracy if a baby will die before birth or at birth or shortly after birth, but, um, just because it, it makes counseling easier. So, um, There was actually a study published in 2012 in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that said there were like four reasons why lethal language was attached to an infant at the time of a prenatal diagnosis. The first two we can kind of forgive doctors for. The first was that practitioners may mistakenly believe that the conditions are in fact lethal. Um, And that's, you know, oftentimes doctors will come out of medical school, certainly around prenatal diagnosis without the most up-to-date information about particular diagnoses. Um, The second is that they're uncomfortable with the uncertainty that a particular diagnosis may present. Again, not my first choice for what I would want a doctor to provide to a parent, but I can at least understand uh, the difficulty of dealing with uncertainty because that's really what we do with the parents that we support. The third and the fourth were very concerning. Um, practitioners believe lethal language makes decision-making simpler. Uh, so it's easier to abort a baby that you think is dying. And for that reason, I would say, again, probably 90% of our families are given the information at diagnosis that they're not going to make it to term. When in fact, anecdotally, we don't see uh, you know, a lot. There are some babies who die. Maybe we lose a heartbeat before birth, but most of our families get to term and the most of them probably have a live birth. They may have a beating heart, but no respirations, but most have a live birth. The other thing is that lethal language makes it easier when families are carrying to term to limit care before babies born, mm-hmm. which seems to be uh, probably what most medical providers are, are most comfortable with. And then the fourth reason cited was that practitioners are aware that death isn't inevitable, but they believe that the surviving children with a particular diagnosis will not have a life that's worth living. Um, Now we also see these like quality of life judgments attached to lethal language, um, you know, tied to a kind of care that's sometimes referred to as futility care, wherein the assertion is that after baby's born, basic care and treatment for secondary conditions is futile because baby's dying. Um, And the reality is if that's your approach to a particular, uh, Community of children with a diagnosis, it actually becomes perpetuating in so much that right. will eventually withdraw something that causes the death of the child. If you're treating the child as if they're dying from the moment they're born, right. I think the other thing that parents don't realize uh, about prenatal diagnosis, and in particular when you are you're looking at diagnoses that uh, should be called life limiting but are called lethal, is that it often results in changes in obstetric management as well as newborn care. And often that happens really without the parents um, understanding the change. Um, Oftentimes it's kind of presented like, well, this is if you're carrying to term, this is what we have for you. Um, It may mean no monitoring during labor and delivery. It may mean a whole different group of providers at the birth. Um, It often means again, limiting of care for baby at the birth. And so that's one of the things we help parents understand.
0: Yeah. Is, uh, are there examples of lethal language? I, I'm thinking, for example, um, words that doctors may use like um, fatal fetal anomaly yes, or incompatible with life. This diagnosis is incompatible with life. Are these practical examples of lethal language that parents would hear?
1: Yes. Yep. Fatal fetal anomaly, lethal prenatal diagnosis. A uh, baby has a condition incompatible with life. And it's sad because uh, certainly the pro-life community has become very comfortable with these phrases too. So if you look at many of the heartbeat bills that have been passed in various mm-hmm. states have uh, carve outs for uh, another term that I, I think is unique to the pro-life legislation legislation called a, a feudal pregnancy um, when in fact it's it's really not possible at diagnosis to know if right. how that pregnancy will end and how that baby might do. You know, one a it's,
0: futile pregnancy I, that that just strikes me as very odd. What is a futile pregnancy?
1: I guess the mindset being that no matter what we do, this is ending in a loss, so it's right. we can accept abortion in that circumstance. And I have to say, even with our heart babies, you know, sometimes it's interesting for parents. One of the things that we explain to them is you may have a parent who uh, comes to us, and let's say they've had a, a pretty good comprehensive experience of their diagnosis. So they, um, maybe they it's likely or it's being expected that baby might have trisomy 13 because they haven't committed to an amnio or a CVS, but they've had an ultrasound that indicated maybe some heart issue, and that was followed up with a echocard- fetal echocardiogram with a cardiologist. Those would be the things that we'd be like, those things need to happen Italy. Before somebody tells you that they know, in fact, or that they have some expectation of what's going on with baby's heart, what parents don't understand um, is that if the decision is made to limit care at that point, um, the reality is any other baby with a heart defect and not a genetic syndrome that's considered life limiting um, would be born, and an echocardiogram would be done on the living child because no cardiologist would be operating off of that fetal echo. Um, But you can abort off of that fetal echo. You can decide to limit care off of that fetal echo. So a lot of times it's about parents understanding um, the prenatal testing that's available to them to give them the best possible idea of baby um, prenatally, but also what's appropriate for like every other baby at birth. So oftentimes we're telling them, um, you know, your options are, are you going to limit care or are you going to have this baby treated like any other baby? And for most parents caring to term, I think it's safe to say that they're very clear about the fact that baby may die from the disability, but they don't want baby to die because of something they might've neglected uh, or because baby in some way was treated differently, especially with basic care.
0: Right. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned in one of your previous answers. And it, it had to do with evolving literature, particularly with trisomy 13 and 18. So can you speak about where the medical literature is going concerning pre, uh, concerning? Excuse me, postnatal outcomes of children who are diagnosed with trisomy 13 and 18, and particularly how these outcomes differ from what most parents are told at the diagnosis?
1: Yes. It, it's actually very fascinating because... Um, you know, we have observed in our development, and as I said, like maybe the last five years, um, that the medical, the community of medical researchers and the community of medical ethicists are are leaning way far forward of where the practice of medicine is. So so our families, generally, it's safe to say that um, if you get a prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 13 and 18, Lethal language is attached. Uh, you're probably told that it's unlikely you're going to get to term. If you do get to term, baby will be born dead. There's no reason to consider any additional care because there's, you know, baby is dying from um, this, what's offered as lethal uh, genetic syndrome. Um, and, you know, to be fair, uh, probably 80% of the parents or maybe more Who are given that information and are not offered a service of support, comprehensive support for carrying to term abort. So in truth, if you're a doctor and you're operating off of old information um, and you do have somebody who suddenly announces they're carrying to term, you probably have seen way more babies with trisomy 13 and 18 who were aborted than babies who were given time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on top of that, probably way fewer babies whose parents opted to have them treated like every other baby at birth. So that's the world that the parents are operating in, in terms of practice. If you look at the research, um, 2015, the American Journal of Medical Genetics looked at survival rates at one month and at one year for trisomy 13 and 18 across various states. So there's not a lot of states with data, but there's a handful. And uh, they determined that the outcomes for survival at a month and a year varied by state, which was Shocking. And in fact, um, for instance, with trisomy 18, survival at one year was two times higher in Georgia than it was in Arizona, Illinois, or North Carolina. Um, And authors observed that the local differences in aggressiveness of medical management, meaning how much care a baby could get at birth, may contribute to that variation. And certainly, you can see, or we see in Georgia, infants with trisomy 13 and 18 are will be evaluated if they are good candidates for heart surgeries. Um, That is not the case in, for instance, North Carolina, where we don't have a pediatric center that will routinely evaluate living children with 13 or 18 for things like a simple heart repair. Um, If you go forward to 2016, also in the Journal of Medical Genetics, this was looking at infants with trisomy 13 and 18, found that survival was related to whether a baby was diagnosed with trisomy 13 or 18 prenatally or at birth. And in fact, the researchers asserted prenatal diagnosis was the strongest independent factor negatively associated with longevity. Um, Really, the difference between a baby with a prenatal diagnosis and a baby who's diagnosed with trisomy 13 or 18 postnatally is that for some period of time following birth, the baby with the postnatal diagnosis is treated like every other baby. Right. Until the diagnosis. And what they found was that 36% of the babies diagnosed prenatally died in the first 24 hours versus only 1% of the babies uh, who were diagnosed postnatally. In addition, you would think maybe if those postnatally diagnosed babies were all put on life support that, you know, a higher percentage of them would die maybe in the first week. But in fact, uh, they were almost two times as likely to survive to discharge than the babies with a prenatal diagnosis. Also in 2016, Journal of American Medical Association uh, looked at one-year survival rates for infants who were offered a variety of indicated surgical interventions. Probably most of those were heart issues and found that those uh, one-year survival rates increased significantly, kind of calling into question the futility of offering heart care Um, 2017 researchers at Stanford found that the survival rate almost doubled for children with 13. I think it, well, I don't know if it was 13 or 18, one of the two, if they received heart surgery. Um, And then just last year, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics published an article. First, the title is so exquisite. What if a prenatal diagnosis or a lethal anomaly turns out to be wrong? And in that article, uh, writers asserted that there should always be a Caveat about confirming the prenatal findings on postnatal evaluation, and and oftentimes that path of limiting care uh, before birth uh, does not provide for uh, the evaluation of the living child, and and in many cases may even offer things like not feeding or something right. called comfort feeding, which obviously can have a huge impact on how many babies. Survived a discharge, in essence. Yeah.
0: So the diagnosis is made, right? The parents have received the diagnosis, life-limiting prenatal diagnosis. What specific challenges or traumas do these families face as the pregnancy moves forward, and and how does be not afraid provide advocacy and support during this time?
1: Um, you know, we encourage parents. We support them in their grief and trauma around the diagnosis, and then we make really clear that they've got to pivot to the birth um, and getting ready for the birth. That's really the major work of their uh, time carrying to term. And oftentimes, uh, people think, when they think about prenatal diagnosis, that the birth is the train wreck, but really the train wreck is the diagnosis. And the birth <laughs> the birth will be better. Even if it means a loss, the birth will be better because parents will be prepared because they will have made decisions. We always say, we would like to get you what you want, which is that this is some huge mistake, but we can definitely get you what you need. And that's how we move forward now. Um, in preparing for the birth, um, we generally encourage them to look at this research and consider again, what they need. Perhaps what's being offered is not what they need. Um, they have to go back in to doctors, oftentimes, advocating generally for flexibility, because most parents find themselves in a place where there's a usual, and that usual involves limiting of care. And most of our parents, when they've actually uh, gotten information about research and things, most parents want some greater flexibility. And it may, you know, it may not be um, the most flexibility. Uh, Oftentimes we say to parents, you need to have a plan at birth that gets you 48 hours into baby's life with a care plan meeting at that point. And then you have all the information you need to know about baby so you can move forward from there. But, um, but they need flexibility to handle labor and delivery and the immediate delivery and immediate baby care as they want. Um, Making certain that they get the right medical referrals is important. If a parent has only had an ultrasound uh, regarding a heart issue, we think they should have a cardio consult as well with a, a fetal echo. They need to understand what that surgery looks like. Um, so we assist in that. But, you know, We also really recognize, obviously, particularly because oftentimes we're serving parents from a distance, that we at BNA uh, can't really impact the medical care they get beyond uh, helping them with messaging and talking points and research and making certain they can articulately explain um, what they are asking for and why. And um, we have a very well-developed birth planning process with multiple conversations. um, And we're happy to reach out to the maternal fetal medicine specialist to request additional referrals. And we we generally, you know, people always say to us, how do you get past HIPAA? We generally find everybody's more than happy to work with us. (laughs) I feel like our parents, you know, we're very lucky to serve the people that we serve. And we're, we're very fortunate that people ch- choose to let us right. participate in helping them welcome their babies. Um, and I feel like oftentimes the medical providers are like, oh, thank God, somebody else is all these conversations <laughs> with this family. Um, so we, we generally have a, you know, it's easy enough for us to say, hey, you know, it would be helpful to them if they talk to the person who would treat the baby with this heart defect at birth. And can we make that happen? So we generally get the kinds of referrals we want. We get the kinds of hospital visits. I guess probably the biggest complication, potentially traumatizing for parents is that, you know, in our local service in Charlotte, North Carolina, we can actually have some impact on which cardiologists or mm-hmm. which pediatric neurologists. Um, sometimes when you don't have that level of control, you send a parent into a consult and we will frequently say, let the pediatric provider know that you understand, let's say if it's a trisomy 13 or 18 diagnosis, you're very aware of the level of disability. You understand this is significant. You're planning a funeral. You need to talk to them about the secondary diagnosis and, and maybe what happens if baby does better than expected. Um, Sometimes even with those talking points, a pediatric provider, we've had pediatric providers say, I question your ethics for carrying to term. Or uh, you don't understand this is a throwaway baby. Um, Or um, with one of our babies that had anencephaly, the neurologist said, "Um, this baby is like that doorknob and pointed to (laughs) So sometimes they're, they're encountering people who, um uh, that's just brutal. Yeah. Who, and you know, there's actually research that looks at different, um, medical, uh, specialties and how many people would abort based on a particular diagnosis. And, you know, if, if 80% of parents are aborting babies with trisomy 13 and 18, um, 80% of OBs are and 80% of, right you know, uh, specialty pediatric providers are. So sometimes that's the hard part. Um, We do find that I think we're pretty successful at helping parents be really prepared for uh, advocating for themselves because they have to and for their baby. So we do a a parent survey every two years and uh, parents, uh, I think we're in the process of collecting that data right now this year. And a hundred percent so far are saying that we improved their interactions with their medical providers. Um, and again, I mean, one of the really great things that we've discovered is that medical providers, even not the most supportive people, will be way more flexible um, if parents can come in and, and articulate themselves right.
0: as well. Yeah, That's absolutely. That is great news. As you were speaking, I, I was wondering, what should a layperson like me? I mean, I have, you know, I, I've I'm a layperson in this whole thing. What should lay people do when friends, family members receive a life-limiting diagnosis? What should they do? What should they not do in supporting those families?
1: Um, I think the not do is is presume that the parents have gotten great information from a supportive medical provider who's well informed. That may sound harsh, but I, mm-hmm. I think. You know, it's uh, it's you know most parents find a medical provider they love at some point. Maybe it's a a neonatologist or something, but it's often not the first person who delivered the information about the diagnosis. That's the big don't. I think the big do's um, don't use lethal language. Um, I would not I would not separate a parent who's traumatized by the lethal language from the lethal language. But um, in your responses you know, go to life limiting and see if parent asks why. Um, I think use baby's name because very often the baby is lost so profoundly in the immediacy of a diagnosis. And sometimes even parents who are traumatized at the time of diagnosis will say, you know, you don't understand. I, this is a big problem. I'm like, we, we've got that. Like we do understand. These are the kinds of babies that we work with. So if you can keep, Taking it, if you can keep the baby alive in your own interactions with parents, that's helpful. Uh, what else? Uh, I think, you know, don't anticipate this goes back under don't. Sorry, I'm flipping back.
0: <laughs> that's all right.
1: That you know who will abort and who will not abort. Um, we see that a lot with Catholic communities praying fervently. And what they don't realize is that the amnio has been done. And mom and dad are waiting for the result, and it's not really clear what decision they will make. But people are, in fact, praying that the result is negative, not realizing that ultimately parents are going to take a positive and, and abort. the The numbers, the statistics, are very high for abortion. And um, if you look at uh, factors that impact the likelihood of abortion, um, things like um, having abortion recommended medically is one of the highest. So it's very very easy for people to be talked into or managed towards an abortion. Additionally, if you think about the mother at 18 or 19 weeks, um, you know, most of us think about abortion as like something you go to an abortion clinic. And oftentimes the hospital is the abortion provider. So these mothers are brought in for an induction of labor. Nobody's calling it an abortion. There's often very soft language around it. It's an induction of labor medical interruption, a pregnancy um, at the hospital, they're treated just like any other lost mother. Um, and sometimes even we see, you know, priests or, or ministers who are kind of confused about the scenario that's been presented to them because of lethal language and the fact that the abortion is being provided at labor and delivery. Right. So um, those would be my, you know, and, and refer. I think it's clear that, Um, Most people think that if somebody is like a fiercely pro-life or fiercely Catholic, they've got this. And um, I I think that, you know, we know that every parent with a prenatal diagnosis would benefit at least from a a, a conversation. And often um, in the absence of support, they're not going to be ready for the birth.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the big things people can do as well and and I've done this and, and Tracy you know this is refer people, refer couples, refer families to be not afraid. And by the way, your website benotafraid.net um, is a way to get a hold of you. And as I said, I've I've referred probably I don't know 3 or 4 families to you over the past couple of years since I've been at the NCBC. So I think, you know, something lay people um, as well can do is is to say, "Hey, family, if if you have questions or concerns, you know, here's a resource out there for you."
1: Yeah. And know that just while you mentioned it, we we do uh, handle referrals through our website. Parents are getting a contact from us within probably six hours. We say 24 hours, but there's like four of us that check the parent support um, email as it comes in, and and often it's much quicker than that. The first thing we do is set up a time to talk to parents, and we tell them in that conversation that there's a lot that you don't get to control around a prenatal diagnosis. But one thing you have control over is whether or not you have us around. And so we provide them with a conversation and some general information that everybody gets, and then they get to decide if they want BNA support or not. So just referring someone doesn't mean that, you know, we're, um, you know, it doesn't obligate them to service. It just gives them an opportunity to hear maybe a slightly different perspective of the situation they find themselves in.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So on your website, you have a document that you yourself wrote, or at least co-wrote, titled Ethical Care of Infants with Life-Limiting Prenatal Diagnoses Based on Catholic Teaching. Unquote. Yes. So Tracy, what led to the writing of this document?
1: Um, I just have to laugh for a minute. I, You know, 20-year-old or even 30-year-old Tracy would have never written a document with that document. <laughs> Um, I still as you read it, I'm kind of crazy, right? Like, did I really write that? Um, um, having said that, uh what was it like last January, January 2019, the Virginia governor uh was talking about his perspective of what a third-term abortion would look like. Mm-hmm. And um <clears throat> he he himself is a pediatric neurologist. So he pivoted, if you go back and look at his actual statement, he pivoted very quickly. To prenatal diagnoses. And he said something like, well, you know, a third trimester abortion would involve a baby with a lethal anomaly. And, and, you know, so we would deliver the baby and keep the baby comfortable, kind of alluding to comfort care, which is often suggested for parents. And then we would make a decision about what to do. Um, you know, we had seen that, that in being Not Afraid, that's what we're trying to make certain a parent is prepared for, um, and has made some decisions ahead of time. Um, and But we were really surprised to find the pro-life community uh, really outraged by that statement and and calling it infanticide. We would have said, you know, it's very easy to neglect a baby to death. But, you know, you can have a baby with a disability, and maybe they die from a disability, but if they're not dying from the disability, um, it's just very easy to deny something or withdraw something, feeding and hydration being the most obvious, um, that results in death. So we thought, hmm, we've seen, we had seen a lot of situations, especially with the babies with primary brain issues, um, where that exactly is what happened. And it's very hard to fix that as an organization that's not medical when parents have a provider on the ground. So what we would see and, and what one of the neonatologists on our advisory council would say is that these babies can't have a bad day in NICU. So you would see a baby that might throw up and the assertion would immediately be that the baby could not be fed. And and then you'd have a parent that would say, well, they told me the baby cannot be fed. And we would say, well, maybe you wanna know the reason why, you know, but it was very hard. Once the decree is made, it's very hard. And parents themselves are struggling with, you know, what's the right information, what isn't. So in light of all this, we thought, you know, we're gonna call the NCBC, we point to you all a lot and we involve, refer parents to you. Um, but I thought, you know, let's have a conversation and see if they can give us some more guidance so that it's not just be not afraid, suggesting that you should have a reason for why a baby can't be fed, but maybe the NCBC. And so, as you know, in those conversations, because you mm-hmm. were involved, yep. you all had a lot to say <laughs> about a lot of things. And I you know,
0: probably wish you hadn't made that phone call.
1: Uh, well, it was pretty... I mean it, it was it was pretty surprising. I mean it was it was a much more broad conversation with a lot more assertions about what was ethical than than what I had anticipated um, And we, I finished the conversation and I I'm, I don't know if you remember, but I think I said, hey, can you all write about this because I thought there's a lot here um, And the answer was uh, you were busy with some other you know more pressing matters and i thought well okay then i hang up the phone and i called our board chair and i said I, we've got to write something and um and i prayed that you all would agree to let us note that it was you are a consulting um organization in this preparation and so we wrote the document mostly because we thought you know some of this stuff it certainly is uh, born out in the medical research and it's the secular ethical ethics community is saying the same things um, And we're telling our parents this, but maybe this document provides for them, um, another way to get at flexibility, (coughs) excuse me. And, um, and, and it's been very successful. If a parent could walk in and say, this is what we're doing. This is the document. I'm sorry. I have a frog in my throat. (laughs) Um, that's all right. This is what we're doing. This is the document. Um, again, we just find flexibility. There's clearly some providers who don't want to have that conversation. And it is presented as a Catholic document. Um, A lot of our families aren't Catholic, and they're still using it. Mm -hmm. So it's just been helpful in terms of giving the parents, you know, here's research, and here's an ethics document that we're choosing to follow. Um, And here's our explanation of ourselves. And together, it has been successful in getting more flexibility.
0: I just want to. I, I just hope people aren't getting the impression that the NCBC ba- abandoned you in this document because we did go no. back and 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 you sent us drafts and we edited and and suggestions and worked together with that. So just just wanted to put that out there. But I,
1: we and really, <laughs> I put pen to paper, uh, but we would not have published it if you had if you all hadn't approved every word yeah. um, and, because I, I'm neither a medical person. Nor am I an ethicist, so it was a—it's uh, probably one of our, one of our bigger "be not afraid" moments, okay. of the last couple of years.
0: That was a great—it was a great learning experience for for myself, and I know for Marie Hilliard, who who worked on the document uh, as well too. So you sort of mentioned this a little bit, Tracy. But what what do you want parents and others to take away from this document? Which, by the way, is available on your website as well.
1: Um, I think just for for parents. You know, again, often the parents that make the decision to carry to term uh, are bonded with their baby, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Um, And oftentimes, they may realize that they're not getting as much information as they feel like they need. So, oftentimes, for parents, it's a realization um, that you know, in asking for stabilization or evaluation, or in taking the lead, even in addressing you know, the care that you want for your baby, that, that that's ethically appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, in fact, maybe you don't know enough about your baby until your baby's born because of things like the ability to do an echocardiogram on the living child. Um, Maybe you don't know enough about your baby until your baby is born, um, that you can be making decisions about what you want to do relative to extraordinary care moving forward from that point. Um, So that, that's, that's really it.
0: So, and you've hit on this as well too. So you insist that a child be evaluated after it's born before any, any ongoing treatment or non-treatment decisions are made, correct?
1: Uh, I would take the word insist and turn it to advocate. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And, and I find that, you know, again, um, most parents who carry to term, um, again, are bonded with their baby and they want their baby. Most of them have come through a diagnosis where abortion was offered. So they're abundantly clear about how serious the diagnosis is. And, um, you know, if somebody tells you that your baby's like a doorknob, you're clear about the level <laughs> of disability, right? Jeez, um, yeah. I mean, sadly, you're very clear about the level of disability. So for most parents who carried a term, if, you know, stabilization and evaluation actually makes perfect sense. It's kind of what parents are looking for because baby has already been in a sense on life support through the pregnancy. And, um, and parents are often worried about, uh, knowing how to strike some balance between, you know, accidentally killing their baby and suffering. Um, And and what does that mean? And they're often greatly burdened by the notion that they should have enough information to make that decision before they meet baby. So it ends up, I think most people are happy to find that there's maybe another way to do this. And, um, you know, relative to basic care, even, um, you know, we will see consults, neonatology consults where it's been said. You know, the first decision is whether or not you intubate if baby isn't breathing. And the second decision, if your baby's breathing, are you going to feed? Like I said before, most parents with a prenatal diagnosis, a serious prenatal diagnosis, are clear that the disability may kill the baby. Um, If they were inclined not to feed their baby, they probably would have terminated the pregnancy if their baby could be fed and it wasn't burdensome. So most parents want to love that baby and give that baby what they can and have whatever time they have with that child and maybe have the option of pursuing extraordinary care and pursuing it, perhaps. They just want options. And it's why it's so important that they they be empowered to parent. And the other thing that we always say is that, you know, I'll say this to parents, you know, everybody else around their baby is going to maybe have well, I'm going to have probably 30 or 40 babies this year that I've got my hands on, and the doctor is going to have a hundred or more, right? Um, they have one, and so whatever the end of that story is for that child, it's really important that they got what they needed and that they have peace about that story, um, which is just another really good reason for them to make certain that the decisions are their parenting decisions and not somebody else's quality of life judgment. Or you know, um, not based on the program that's available at their hospital or what people typically do. It really needs to be about them and their child.
0: Great answer. All right. So the child is born, and let, let's assume that you know the child has it, it. survived the initial, whether they're in the NICU or not, and and they've they've survived and they've they've actually um, survived to discharge and they go home. So what are some of the, the challenges and even traumas that families face here and, and what, uh, postnatal advocacy and support does be not afraid, be not afraid provide to them?
1: Um, you know, I think that increasingly what we're finding is that that NICU period may actually be harder in terms of challenges that
0: okay. let's talk about that
1: and the home, um, And again, it's because parents have to be vigilant Um, if their decision has been stabilized and evaluate, and we're going to piece together care based on palliative care. So some things that are beneficial, or if they're going to, if they're saying we're doing everything, um, all extraordinary care, they have to remain really vigilant that the, you know, their mantra is, I want my baby treated like every other baby. Um, Because in the NICU setting, with different neonatologists coming and going. um, You can sometimes still find yourself dealing with a provider who's maybe doesn't know you or maybe would have made a different decision for themselves or maybe thinks that the quality of life here is significant that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, So sometimes we see uh, developments uh, like a secondary something develop Mm -hmm. uh, would be handled totally different for any other baby but probably the most clear one is a lot of our trisomy babies will develop airway assessments or excuse me, airway issues, maybe at the third day that look like apnea. And very often um, immediately someone will say, well, that's central apnea. If, um, if a baby, any other baby in the unit developed what looked like apnea, there'd be an airway assessment. Um, What we found is that all of our trisomy babies that had an airway assessment, We're determined to have obstructive apnea, not central apnea. Um, So it's things like that, just having to stay on top of. And and we support parents for a year following the birth, whether they have a loss or whether they have a baby that is in NICU or a baby home. I feel like once we get a baby home, um, by the grace of God, there are a lot of supportive in-home services. So really, the vast majority of our babies, even our heart babies that don't have a genetic condition, are home with multiple you know, intervention therapies, um, assisting it's, it's just difficult to get that NICU baby with the life limiting prenatal diagnosis to discharge. And and some of that is that, you know, to be fair, they are sometimes really complicated babies as well. And, and sometimes, uh, in that evaluation at birth, you find something that wasn't caught. I mean, people think that prenatal diagnosis is so certain, but, um, we've had, couple of instances where, you know, we got to the valuation and there was suddenly a, a, a pretty significant issue that hadn't been found earlier. So they can be complicated even in the NICU setting just on their own and sometimes complicated by um, providers who, who are not as willing to s- treat them like every other baby.
0: Similar question to what I asked earlier: What should lay people like myself do or not do in providing support for postnatal children
1: and their families? Um, I think that you know, wh- well, when we started this work, we were very focused on the offer of abortion, and and we thought this is really pro life work. And um, at some point early on, I found I think it's the 1978 Bishop's statement on disability, which had the most clear. Uh, presentation of Catholic ethics or Catholic teaching around prenatal diagnosis. And I thought, wow, this is a disability issue. Who knew? It just did not occur to me that way. So I think that, you know, if you know someone that has a baby in NICU, you're either talking about a medical disability or an intellectual disability or a baby at home. Um, So we could all, I mean, I myself had to learn to be careful around messaging for disability in particular, to be thoughtful about what's called people first language, um, to not call a, a little person a disabled baby or your handicapped child or something, mm-hmm. just be more thoughtful about the dignity of the little person and um, and the parent who's um, who loves that child. Um, again, use baby's name a lot. Um, I think that parents often need way more Support in little ways. So one of the most important things that we'll sometimes do is uh, have meals delivered. And um, even with our babies, you know, we had a baby that was um, in the hospital for a long time relative to a brain surgery. That mother was getting or that family was getting meals delivered home for the four months. Uh, part of the time, part of the time baby was in the hospital, part of the time baby was home. Um, because it is a lot to take home a baby. You know, that you've delivered, and then immediately you didn't really have a chance to recover yourself from the delivery. You're immediately in baby's medical crisis. Right. Right. So um, I think simple things like um, meals and childcare. And um, another thing is to kind of think about bringing by, uh, you know, like a grocery bag of the stuff a family needs every week or every 10 days. So milk and cereal. And butter and the kind of stuff that you run out for and think, oh, I need that. But um, I have a baby with a trach and it's really hard to do that. Um, So those kinds of things I think are helpful for others.
0: Great advice. So Tracy, while respecting privacy, because we always have to do that, I was wondering if you could tell us about your greatest success story at BNA and what you learned from it. And also maybe talk about a case where things didn't go as well as you had hoped for and what you learned from that case.
1: Yes. Um, I think I mentioned we're in the middle of our completing our parent survey. Um, So my answer is a little skewed in both answers uh, because of something that came up in the parent survey. And the, the background is this, that, um, You know, most of the families that come to us have already made the decision to carry to term. Um, Most of the families that come to us are pregnant, but we always say we will serve whoever God sends. So occasionally, maybe once or twice a year, a parent will be referred to us who is undecided about carrying to term or perhaps even very abortion minded. Um, And I had um, a, a family, a couple, first baby, probably maybe five years ago um and she was very abortion minded um and uh i just really didn't think we had a hope of convincing her to do something different and um I, we have you know we have kind of a, a perspective of what we think are appropriate points of advocacy um and there's like five or six things i i was aware that i you know when i talked to her i talked about the baby who was named Gabriel um and one of the other big things I talked to her about, one of our talking points is that, um, you know, the parents who carried a term don't have any regret. Um, and that's borne out in the research around yep. pre-natal diagnosis as well as our parent surveys.
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: Ultimately she carried to term. Amazing. I thought for sure we, we weren't going to get there and baby was born still. And she had this beautiful blog in which she talked about, uh, the birth and all the things that were different around the birth, even though he was a child who, who she didn't hold alive and how different it was from the diagnosis. And she said that, you know, what she, what really changed the mind for her was our conversation about having no regrets. Um, so fast forward last year and, and it's lovely because this fa- they've gone on to have other children. I mean, Facebook is a wonderful thing because you get to see people, Right. And, and I mean, Gabriel is a part of their family story in a way that he could never have been if she had ended his life at 19 weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. Fast forward last year, we have a mom, and oftentimes they come to you and, and they're not like, I mean, they know who we are, right? So they're not saying, I'm going to abort, um, but they're standoffish. So we had a mom last year referred, and um, I really thought she was abortion minded. And I, among other things, I sent her to, uh, Gabriel's mother's blog. And we never had a conversation where she said, Hey, I've made a decision to carry the term. We just took care of her. Right. And, and ultimately there was a live birth. There was a baby who had a minor heart surgery and there's a baby who's home, right. Living. And she's going to be fine. She's not, um, her level of disability isn't significant. She's one of our babies without any in-home services. Um, and and I always kind of thought that her mother came very close to terminating. Um, but I got the survey results and uh, in a free response, her mother said uh the life-saving moment for my daughter was when I read that parents who carried a term have no regrets. Um and I think that I love the story because there you go. You know, there are little successes all along the way. Again, this is a A young family, this is the second baby, mom and dad are in their 20s. Um, like their whole lives, uh, could have been changed in, in the simple mistake of making a decision too quickly or without enough information. And it was as simple as, you know, um, you might regret this option, you won't regret this option. So I guess that would be the success. Um, and I'm just really fortunate. Thank God. That um, that both of those women were willing to let God speak through me, right? To listen
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and to and to make a hard decision, right? Because certainly everybody makes like makes it look like abortion's the easy decision. Um, I guess then in terms of um, a not success, again, just every once in a while we get one of these families and. We um, we were supporting a family someplace else. Mom had not named baby, was a boy. He had anencephaly. She was very abortion-minded. And she gave us time. I said, uh, she had already been to the Planned Parenthood Clinic. She knew what her options were relative to abortion. Um, I said, let, let me see what we can rally for you in terms of support in this place where she lived that wasn't where we were. And... Um, I did everything I thought, we did everything we thought we could do, reached out to the diocese in that area, crisis pregnancy center, uh, you know, a plug to find a doctor, like it was one brick wall after another. And finally, we found a doctor uh, through a crisis pregnancy center who was willing to meet with her. And we had said, you know, what this needs to be is the offer of support from this doctor. It doesn't, I mean, she knows he has baby has anencephaly, We don't need to talk about that. And we really need it to be free. And everybody in that community was like, we got this. And mom called me as she left the appointment. And she said, um, and I really think she loved this baby. I mean, I I think she just didn't see a path forward. She said, well, the doctor was very nice. You know, he assured me that this was very serious and the baby was going to die. And he charged me $150. She said, mm-hmm. I can't afford to go to him anymore because my abortion will just be $200 so i have to abort my baby and wow. she let us like the conversation could not be continued after that um and i thought you know um it's not it's not a complicated response that you need to have but you need to be ready um i worry about her that's probably the biggest reason because i know that um she had space for this baby she just couldn't figure out how to how to move forward and continue yeah. the pregnancy. So that would be my 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 failure, not our, my failure, but a story that wasn't a success.
0: Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't say that's a failure, and I, I think that's one that you know everyone you know everyone listening say a prayer for that woman and and for her child. And yeah, Ugh, it's a tough one to hear. Tracy, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners?
1: Um, you know, I think that. Uh, the challenge for us is, as Catholics and as pro-life Christians uh, is to continue uh, in spite of a prenatal diagnosis to you know remember that there's a baby that the the diagnosis itself doesn't change the inherent dignity or the the unique and unrepeatable human reality. There's a great um, JP2 quote or uh, St John Paul the great quote that includes that phrase unique and unrepeatable human reality of a baby and um, I think it's easy to hear a diagnosis. Sometimes they're almost tabloid, like a baby with anencephaly and the skull doesn't develop and there's exposed brain. It's very easy to hear a diagnosis and forget that there's a, a baby. And it's especially easy to do that if our if our perspective of our pro life work is that the alternative to abortion is a happy, healthy six month old. Because you know some of these babies aren't going to be here that long, and if they do survive, they're they're going to be infants with disability. Um, it's one of the reasons we talk about welcoming babies and, and we really focus in our work to make clear that the baby is, uh, beloved and precious, most certainly to God, but also to us with per- personalized handmade gifts and things that we said. Um, just this week, a family prepared their birth plan. We have a sample that we give to them and they copy from it a lot. And, um, 12 years. And I, they took my breath away because their statement was, um, uh, something like, we have in our birth plan, uh, you know, their baby has anencephaly. We understand that our baby will look different from other babies. We have that statement and then parents finish it in whatever they, way they want. But they said, we understand that our baby will look different than other babies. But please know that she is wanted and loved. Um, And I'm not sure we ever had a family put wanted in there. It was so beautiful. So I just, I guess my final thoughts would be that I think our advocacy for the unborn in a general sense would be more fruitful ultimately if we were as comfortable asserting the the beauty and dignity of, you know, the least of the babies, you know, the the most medically complex, those whose life may be briefs, may be brief, um, and those who may live with significant disability um yeah. maybe we can all work on that in addition to um, you know our assertion about the the beauty and dignity of the lives of the perfect babies um we just don't forget these babies
0: yeah very well said and just lastly how can people get in touch with you
1: um again we have a contact button and a parent referral button at the website and we are uh a little obsessive compulsive about checking it. So if you go to uh, you can hit the contact button or the, um, or the parent referral button. And there's probably about an 80% chance that you'll hear back from me the same day you send that contact.
0: Everyone who I have ever um, sent to you has emailed back and said, Oh my goodness, Tracy got back to me immediately. So. So I can I can uh, I can attest to that, Tracy Windsor. Thank you again for your time today, and may God bless your ongoing work with "Be Not Afraid."
1: Thank you so much, Joe.
0: For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the blogs and podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24 hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215. 877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today and may God's peace be with you.